Before we begin, I'd like to proudly mention our sponsor, Injitsu.com, providing remote at-home training from some of the world's top MMA fighters. These classes are not pre-recorded. These trainers come to you live and coach you for the duration of the class. I've personally taken a few of these classes, and I've never felt so inspired and accomplished in a workout session. They'll leave you both on the floor in exhaustion, but wanting more. There are still slots available for online classes, so head over to injitsu.com slash richardlistens to get your first class free. That's I-N-J-I-T-S-U dot com slash richardlistens. I'll see you there. I'm a big fan of MMA sports. It's rough and elegant at the same time. I think my number one fear of stepping into a ring like that would be protecting my teeth. Luckily, the guys over at Impact Dental Designs have created an amazing mouth guard that is state of the art. These mouth guards are currently being used by some of the best MMA fighters, but even better, they can be tailored to any sport. Football, hockey, boxing, soccer, the list is endless. Head over to impactdentaldesigns.com slash richardlistens to get 20% off your order and a free customized design for your mouth guard. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Richard Olberger, clinical psychologist, here to do another podcast featuring another amazing contributor to the world of sports, resiliency, and overcoming. Excited for our guest today, Tal Leibowitz. Tal Leibowitz is, has represented the United States of America in the Table Tennis Hall of Fame inductee and a champion for P-Sport. played table tennis for over 25 years, beginning at the South Queens Boys Club and Girls Club in Queens, New York. Tal has represented the United States internationally for more than 20 years and is trained to qualify for his sixth Paralympic Games, which will take place in Japan 2021. Tal dominated Pan Am Games and was also a four-time U.S. Olympic qualifier. He graduated with an MSW from NYU and is currently licensed as an LMSW and works in New York City, assisting marginalized groups and individuals. Tal was recently inducted into the USATT Hall of Fame for and wrote Ping Pong for Fighters, a best-selling table tennis instructional book on Amazon. We look forward to hearing more about the Paralympic gold mindset, and we are excited to have guests who feature the resiliency the mission, the inspiration to go on, a great thing to help other part of this podcast. Without further ado, I am here to introduce to you, Mr. Tal. Yep. And so I understand you are a licensed social worker in New York City. Yes. And I, I feel like I was born into that tribe. Everyone I know is either a guidance counselor or a social worker. I'm just surprised it took us this long to meet. About my last name, since you, you brought that up, my grandfather, when he came here, they changed it three times to believe that. You know, because as you well know, people change their names right? When they come into New York City, they modify them a little bit. But yeah, that's quite interesting. And I didn't know that until maybe about three or four years ago. Really? It's the, interesting how it's come up in the world of sport. Recently, my son plays here in Los Angeles. And, you know, a lot of things happen in the field of sports, some sporting sportsmanship like and some not so much. And it's interesting how in a culture rich we, we understand the time of the world, what the year has been. The tensions have been high. 
And, you know, there's some slurs that have been thrown around the field of play at times. And at times I've asked my son, you know, before we get upset, let's let's research the history of that. Sure. You know, and it's been interesting mm -hmm. for me because I know we, we get upset. I know it's supposed to mean something, but I don't really know what it attaches to. And we did some research to exactly that instance, shortening of the name or, you know, the lumping Ooh. of names, scribe, a, a group of people, pejoratively. I'm not sure if that's exactly what happened or just a mispronunciation we're referring to. But it's amazing that that becomes, you know, such a significant part of, of our family history. And our yeah, it is. You know, there's a lot of different directions we can go in. And one of the things that I try not to forget, you know, is, well, I don't think I could forget it. But, you know, my grandfather was, you know, obviously our, you know, we have a family history of people being in the Holocaust. You know, my grandfather, Simon Weisskull, a lot of different camps. He escaped to Sweden. He lo he actually lost, you know, we don't really want to start on the bad note. But, you know, his seven brothers were killed right in front of him when he was 10 years old. Even on my dad's side, his sister was killed she was five but just to have that i mean just the things we can do to each other as human beings it's unbelievable that sometimes we i think to diminish somebody's humanity right we have to create a story we have to do something to remove their humanity and it could be something simple to like I don't know, driving, you're driving. This person's terrible, we can't. So I, th I think that's a good practice, practicing kindness maybe, you know, and seeing the humanity in other people. I think those are good things. Certainly, and we know the studies that are done in psychology around prison studies where you put people in a position of authority and all of a sudden uh, power and, and group think and behaving, you know, bystander apathy, right? People just standing by and feeling it's not their place to stand up. And I think if it wasn't yesterday or today, the anniversary of, of George Floyd, it'll be a little bit of a reminder for our listeners. We should give note to that to uh, never stand by and for injustice and, and to be a little bit kinder. It is something that we can control right now. I'm noticing it in the grocery store. I just came with the mask and you're trying to ask someone Am I, am I bumping you with my cart without using your mouth? So it's a fun little yeah. game of how can we show respect with a lot of body language and winks and nods and gestures, other gestures. Yeah. And that's such an interesting uh, psychological study that you bring up because I don't know if there's, you know, sometimes we can look at people and they don't do certain things and then we judge them morally and we're like, oh, it's just terrible people. But I mean, that study really shows that sometimes we do things that we're not even aware of. You know, that's why it is good to get information out there to make people aware. And I think maybe awareness is probably important for people. It really is. Plus, you know, just pain, right? That when we're in pain, we do look for someone to blame. And this last year, you know, people are saying, how's your business going, Richard? Well, People are calling, athletes are calling, and I'm excited about that trend. Unfortunately, I think it's really coming from the root that, you know, people are in such pain. And I'd rather them get this healing than look to scapegoat one another. But when we are struggling, we look for who is causing it, who, you know. And in a lot of cases, there's a lot of history, you know, behind a lot of struggles, you know, particularly when it when it cut ties to, you know, I know you've done a lot of work for Maccabi and Israel and all the struggles we've seen come up in the last week it's been forefront in a lot of my therapy sessions which is different yeah you know and and it's interesting in a lot of work that we do because you know obviously now with insurance companies they're really focused on cbt and being able to to say okay a lot of this stuff is self-generated has to do with a belief which maybe to some extent that is true there is definitely some value for sure but you're absolutely right. There are things that happen for people and there are just life chances and there are things that people experience. And it's it's sometimes it's hard to process that. And it's hard, you know, in our work, we've got so many different things that we're doing with a client. But I just try to look at in the beginning, you know, what somebody's doing in their 
in their life. You know, uh, you know, everybody has different approaches. And I think those are important things, you know, what we do in our lives, who we interact with, how we treat others, how we treat ourselves. So those are the, really the three things that I look at, how someone relates to themselves, how they relate to other people and how they relate to the environment. I mean, I certainly, you know, started to look at the limits of every school. There's a lot of great schools of therapy, but without looking at this piece of you know, especially the guy come from a trauma perspective, even when working with athletes in about where did you get these messages from? So we may have a belief. Yes, it's good to look at, you know, the whole ABCs of cognitive behavioral therapy, antecedent behavior and consequence. But if it's in your family or you know your grandfather went through that experience or that's what he carried, mm-hmm. we, we're aware of it on some level. You know, we're aware yeah. of the, oh, yeah, what sure. people went through or what, and, and it gets passed down. It's really amazing, you know, and even just a a beautiful moment to share with you. My son graduated high school on Friday, and he was the only white Jewish student in a a mostly Latino Catholic school for his senior year. And, you know, my mother, whose parents were, she was second generation. So, you know, Russian white woman got to see first generation, these parents seeing the first high school Mm -hmm. graduate. And it was like this incredibly moving experience to her because, you know, it's like a little bit of taste of what maybe her parents went. Like, it's very interesting what things impact us and in what way, but we digress, but it's really, really moving sometimes when we see, wow, what that means to someone in their life. Yeah. And I didn't even start looking at all this stuff until, uh, you know, a few years ago when I first read Body Keeps the Score. Great book. It's like, yeah. Yeah, you know, it's so ironic, right? That all the years of training, we go to the mind. Maybe it's a Western thing, a cognition. And then all of a sudden people have been pointing me for the last few years. Look at the body. But yeah, it's amazing the work. I mean, it's just, you know, the human experience. I think that's what you're in some sense describing. And that really does have an effect on, again, the environment, the people you're relating to, where you are, and you know, all this connects. You know, it's like a puzzle. It's like a giant puzzle. Right? You got to connect everything. So, yes. Cool. And that's the beauty yeah. of being, whether you're in the mentor role or the coach role or the therapist role. Yeah. I feel like I'm helping pull those pieces together, create the integration. So tell us a little bit more. You know, I'm really excited to have you here. It's not often that we get a Hall of Fame. Is it just a Hall of Fame inductee? Are you in? Is it a Official? I think it's official. Yeah. You know what? At least I could say I was in. They knocked me out. At least I could say. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Even that would be a good conversation. What What do you have to do to get removed from the ping pong hall of fame? That'd be pretty good. Yeah. That would be a great conversation. Yeah. Tell us a little bit more about, I mean, what do you want to start with? Ping pong, social work, your roots. How did you get started from Queens, New York, raised there? Yo, I was born in Israel in Haifa. And my parents came here when I was very young and grew up in Howard Beach. And then my parents ended up moving to, they wanted to get a house. They were living in a pretty nice apartment in in Howard Beach. It was a two bedroom. There were three of us, me and my two sisters and my parents. And then my mom, for some reason, really wanted to get a house. So she ended up selling where we were, which was paid off. And I think they bought it for $8,000. They sold it for 90. They ended up getting a house for 150, but it was in a really bad area because they couldn't really afford anything at that time. It was by Cypress Hills, Brooklyn. So then I spent a few years growing up there, which uh, was okay. A lot of fights, a lot of different challenges there. Oh yeah, music was pretty good. Yeah, not too bad, not too bad. Ended up living on the street for a little while, number of years actually, Uh, just me. So I was not getting along with my parents very well. And my dad had some issues and some things going on. Same with my mom. And I spent some time sleeping in the subway for a number of years. So I, I took a GD, right? Just trying to give a, give a snapshot. Took a GD, 
I went to college in 1993, but I dropped out because I just couldn't pass it, couldn't do anything. I went back a few times and I kept failing out. And then in 2006, I started again. They had an adult collegiate program. And then I completed two bachelor's degrees and then I completed two master's degrees, which actually was really difficult to get in that program because I didn't know how to, uh, I didn't know what division was. I mean, I just couldn't really do anything. So it was really tough to catch up. And that took a while. And then did I played table tennis. Did you find a mentor or did somebody? Well, I would say my closest mentor, I have a table tennis coach. His name is Sean O'Neill. Uh, he's helped me through a lot of, I mean, he's the one that got me to really get on this path, especially because it, there's such a great distance between when you, you know, where you are and then you look at a goal. Everybody has been life and they have things that they want to do and they want to achieve. And I think it's sometimes where you are and you see that distance. It's such a great distance. And you have to do all these small things to close the distance, whether it's applying for the school, right? In the case, if it's going to be college, you know, taking each class at a time. So I would say Sean O'Neill was a two-time Olympian and a uh, five-time USA national champion. And uh, he helped me a lot outside of table tennis to really get where, where I am right now. And definitely had some interesting times. We're still very good friends a few times a week. It's interesting that you bring up mentor because I think people need that in some sense. They don't really have that as much. You need a group. They need. Well, particularly, right, this model where, you know, where do you get? And I feel like so much anxiety or stress and trauma comes from feeling isolated with your pain. And when you're describing a situation, mm -hmm. when, you know, struggle in the family, where do you go? How do you even mm -hmm. begin to take that first step? The goal may seem so far away. And sometimes mm -hmm. one person seems to be a theme to find one person is kind of that hand that at least pays yeah. that first step or stays there just reminding you that you can do it. Yeah. And it's so interesting. I was looking at a lot of some of the work that you're doing and I see that you've done a lot of work with, you know, people that are suicidal clients and things of that nature. And, and that really connects because you have some people that feel so removed or marginalized from society that the only thing they can do is try to get out of this world as quickly as possible. I mean, for me, I found those are some of the toughest clients to work with because you, at least in my own experience, you know, you work with somebody, okay, it's either they're, they, you know, they've had some kind of incident where they've tried to take their own life. They're still here. And then you're like, okay, we've got this whole thing going and now we're going to, things are going to get better. But it's, as you know, in mental health, it's not that easy because people do need that mentorship. They do need that support. And if they don't have a good support system, there's just, I mean, go on and on, but there's just so many I guess, parts to it, right? That if there's something missing, it's just difficult for people. And again, I was lucky because, you know, I found table tennis. I don't know where I would be. And, you know, and also to find, you know, my coach did help me a lot. So yeah. So when did just, you find yeah. it in all this? And and sometimes it can be that one thing because you just kind of ping my brain around my work on Skid Row. And I met some fascinating people on Skid Row here in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. And it's like one of the, I mean, top three in the nation for homelessness. And there's more mm -hmm. missions per capita, I think, in a small uh, square radius. It's also where mm -hmm. there's tons of drug addiction, you know, but the unique factors that I saw there were there was community. They can help each other heal. The group as the social mm -hmm. support because they were climbing up together. You know, there was that, you know, that sense of we're in it together. A lot of times people had a gift. I met some gifted artists, you know, musicians, mm -hmm. you know, really. And if you can get them in front of the right person, or if you can just really sometimes getting on the bus and making that first appointment, there's that window where, you know, mm -hmm. I think it's called, you know, opportunity is supplies the sport too, right? Opportunity meets the preparation. You've already been doing mm -hmm. a lot of preparation without even being being aware of it probably if you've been drawing every day or you know practicing your sport so you just need that opportunity get that intersection to have to be as a coach mentor 
or mental health professional change, you know, I believe we can help change lives. So that's uh, to this course. So how did you find table tennis? And tell us maybe a little bit about that. I started playing table tennis in the South Queens Boys and Girls Club. So that was kind of like a place where they had a lot of different sports and it was for at-risk youth that would sort of attend the club. You know, we ended up having a team and, and they were really good because they, they started, they hired some table tennis coaches for us. They had a whole, they took one floor and they made it into like a table tennis club and we were able to practice there. So that was really, really tremendous uh, for me. And then I found another place, which was a parks department. And that was on in Regal Park, Queens, which is not too far from New York City. But in this place, it would be open from 4 p.m. to 10. And I was just beginning. And if you, there's so many people there. So if you play one match, you have to wait a number of hours to play another one. So you get in maybe four, you get a match, let's say maybe 4.30. Then you don't get your next match till seven. And then maybe you get one more. So you can get like two matches time, sometimes three. And I think that helped me a lot too, because... If you want to play, you better win. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> taught me to value the points and really fight hard to win because you really didn't want to sit. You wanted to play as much as, as you could because table tennis is kind of like a, almost like a therapy or a drug. I don't know which one. I don't know if it's a drug or a therapy or both. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think those are important things, you know, but I think the group aspect, what you mentioned is really, really important. They say that in the art of war right? That people are, you know, if they're complete enemies and they have a task they need to complete, they, they work together. And I think that's part of it too. And I remember in social work, the first time I started doing social work is I was working in a, in a program like that, where we had people that uh, were having all types of difficulties and they were doing tasks together. We're doing gardening, we do cooking. And, and it goes back to what you just said in the beginning, when we started talking, when I was first working there, I was like, well, I'm trying to help these people. I was having difficulty with some people. I didn't know really what I was doing at all. And then I realized I started looking into their background, that everybody has a background. And there were some clients that I was working with that was just terrible. Some of their kids had been killed. Some of them, uh, uh, you know, parents had, had killed their brothers and sisters. It was just terrible. But you see that there's a past for people. And yeah, I think that really connects to what you were saying before. That sometimes it has to be looked at, I think, you know. Yeah. So I'm hearing that through the Boys and Girls Club, you, you were able to get some identity and some confidence. Where did you learn that you could take this to a competitive level, you know, and, and did that coincide with also you being able to create stability for yourself? Like how, how, did, how did that journey manifest? Well, I would say there are two things that allowed me to achieve a good level. For me, the two most important things were the first was I was seeing all these really good players in the United States that were so good. My coach was one of them who's coaching me now, but I didn't know him back then. And there were some very, very good players. And the distance, like I was talking about, between my level and these top players was so great. And then I started thinking, wow, it'd be pretty amazing if uh, I didn't think I could beat them. But I said, well, if I could play a couple points, maybe have a nice competitive match, that'd be a lot of fun. And I think that's the most enjoyable thing about table tennis, having these really good matches. So I tried to make things difficult for my opponents. So that was the first thing. And then, you know, if you can battle somebody 50% of the time, uh, I mean, all the time, you'll probably win 50% of the time. Battle somebody. So that was one. I said, okay, I want to try to battle these people. I want to make life difficult for them. And started getting good. So that was one reason. The other is really self-belief. And, you know, really believing that you can make it, you know, that, that you can compete with people, with players. I'd say those are probably the two things that allowed me to achieve a pretty good level. But also I was pretty fortunate because I got to copy and see some of the other really good players. So I think you need that as well. You know, I wouldn't have got to the level unless there, you know, the people before me, you know, I was able to look at them, copy their serves, you know, and really see what they were doing. And I would just take from each player. You know, I remember one player had 
usually when we loop the ball, it's a lot of like rotation and topspin. So when people block it, it goes out. But there was one player that was doing it. He was making backspin. So I copied that many years ago. That still gets me a lot of points today. Copy that when I was starting. It's just lucky to these table tennis environments, they just accept anybody. You've got people from different cultures, different, you know, and we all just play table tennis. So I think that's really powerful. And that made a difference for me. How popular is the sport right now worldwide? I know when you get to Olympics and you see like badminton and you see, you know, table tennis and you're like, who are the people that are mastering this? I mean, is the U.S. one of the leaders? How is its popularity growing? Well, in the Olympic realm of table tennis, we're not super competitive. Probably, I don't know if we're top 50 in the world, but we don't really have too much chance to win any medals. We have some good players that have gotten good. Lily Zhang, Kanak Cha has been uh, really good. Uh, Nikhil Sharon. We have a bunch of good players. But in the Paralympic uh, level, that's what I play in. I play in the Paralympics, and this will be my sixth one. We're pretty competitive. Uh, we have three really good players right now. Uh, we have myself, and then I play in the class nine. So there's 10 different classes. And we also have a player named Jensen, and we have another player uh, named Ian. And Ian's father was a great, great champion in table tennis. And we played on the same team together, although he was a little bit out of his prime, but he still was playing well and actually still did pretty well. He's the coach this time. We have classes one to 10, 10 being least disabled, one being most disabled. I'm a nine. I was a seven and eight. They moved me around a lot. But yeah, we have a really good parrot team, I think. And and we're starting to get better. to evaluate your level of disability over time? Well, I think they've changed, I guess, the evaluation system. It's called the classification system. So they've changed that a couple of times. And also I have osteochondroma. So it's like it affects one in 5 million people. So it limits my movement with my bones. So like here, I can turn this hand like this almost all the way. This one, I can't really turn at all. So that's a limitation. And, you know, I think, you know, also I was able to compete with the best players in the country too, all the able-bodied players. But one of the challenges in winning these events, like they just had team trials, you know, you can beat a few of them, but there's a lot of players. So it's not easy to beat you know, 10 in a row. We just, we had actually a player from Israel. His name is Sharon Algetti, and he just won team trials, which is very difficult to do to beat. I think he won 10 matches, which is not easy uh, to do that. He's not an Olympic player. He was almost made it. Like you have to play against Canada. So a few of us have like in 04, I was an Olympic qualifier with my coach. That's when I was talking about, we played doubles, but he was a lot closer in singles than I ever was. He was maybe one or two matches away from making the singles. And I was a couple of matches away from making the doubles. But again, it's it's difficult because you have to finish top in North America. And there's very few people that have done it. My coach has done it twice. Uh, Canadians are good, but it's you got to get through US. You've got to get through Canada. So you, and then you, uh, so it depends. Sometimes Canada is better than us. Sometimes we're better than them. It depends on the generation. But yeah, my coach was able to do it twice. So he said the first time he said it was lucky. So I was like, well, you got it twice. First time maybe lucky, but two, it's pretty good. So do you have to break out your family therapy skills between the coach and one of the players? I mean, yeah, what do you do? What's that like to see like father-son relationship on the team? Well, I think my coach is maybe a little too young to be my father, but I would say what's really unusual is, and again, we're just so different, you know, but he treated me like, you know, in, in some ways like family. So, you know, again, it's good to have that support. And, you know, and I was thinking about that actually a couple of weeks ago, because I was in like a case conference and I was thinking, because I work in a few different places, but I work with some clients that have some symptomology like schizophrenia and bipolar. And you know, I've noticed, I don't know in, in your experience, that what's really important for people is that support. I think it really makes such a big difference where they know, okay, I mean, there's so many stories we can talk about, but I remember I was working with one client 
and they she had a lot of difficulty. She was 12 years old, and they were going to send her to South America. We'll get into the whole thing, but the only thing I said to her, and I was doing you know all the modalities at the time, and I was like, all right, let me do dialectic. She was cutting. And I remember the, the one thing that I said, I just said, I said, you know what? Okay, whatever, threw chairs out the window, you attacked your uh, principal. He goes, I said, okay, I don't agree with what you're doing, but you know what? I'm going to support you. Whatever you do, I'm going to be there. I'm going to help you. Like, no matter what happens, I'm going to be there. And, you know, and that, just that, I mean, that changed everything for her. And sometimes people need that. They need that, that support, I think. It seems like everyone these days is trying new workout systems. Some people go to the gym, others may run but I've recently discovered a great in-home method that is absolutely amazing. I'm taking in-jitsu classes online where I'm being trained and pushed in real time by top MMA fighters straight from the octagon. Injitsu.com provides real-time classes so you can get a top-notch workout from the comfort of your own home. These classes are absolutely going to sell out. So head over to injitsu.com slash richardlistens to get your first class for free. That's I-N-J-I-T-S-U dot com slash Richard Listens. Protecting your child's teeth is important in any sport. That's why Impact Dental Designs has put so much thought into their state-of-the-art mouth guards, protecting athletes in youth sports all the way up to advanced MMA fighters and champions. And the best part is you can customize your own design for your own creative and fun mouth guard. So head over to impactdentaldesigns.com slash Richard Listens. And if you purchase now, you get a free customized design and 20% off your order. Well, a lot of the extreme behaviors you're talking about, you know, dialectical behavioral therapy and the kind of mm -hmm. suicidal, what they call parasuicidal behaviors. And a lot of parents get shocked by seeing people talk about cutting or hurting themselves. That scares them. But it's like, you know, this attempt to feel because mm -hmm. numbing has become a coping way of dealing with yep. a chaotic oh. environment. Mm -hmm. Showing someone that you're going to unconditionally be there. And I know that DBT therapists go outside of this structured, don't call me outside a session, you know, yep. all these kind of these protocols, which teach healthy boundaries. But for somebody who needs more containment, there's that allowance for direct you, but you are going to be held and you can bring all of you. You don't have to pretend you can't bring in those parts of you, which are feeling out of control or, yeah. or suicidal, right? We're going to talk about those behaviors. We're going to talk about those thoughts. We're going to, you know, learn to accept and find different ways of expressing those same feelings. Yeah. And not to get off topic, the only thing I'll, I'll add to that is, yeah, the, the emotional release is so important, but I, you know what I found that again, in my own experience is that we're describing unconditional positive regard. And, you know, of course, with rational emotive behavior therapy, right, person has to kind of, well, you're accepting the person, but I think what's more important is the person accepting themselves to me. And I think that's really, really important for people that a lot of people are difficult with themselves and they don't accept who they are. And that's sort of what I do a lot in my work. People can be a little bit easier with themselves, everything they're carrying, right? Try to set it down and try to have some self-acceptance. I think yeah. it's super important. And how did you get there for you? Because to go on that journey, if you don't mind me putting you on the spot, right? But there are people mm -hmm. humble enough to admit that kind of struggle to be, to have a period of homelessness and struggle and yet find this place where it's like, wait a minute, I have a skill. I have a gift. I have a curiosity. I have a excitement. I have an ability. I have a way to go forward. How did you find that place within yourself of accept? Or is it an ongoing struggle? Yeah, it's such a good question. I think it's an ongoing struggle in table tennis where it's like you always want to do more 
So you can't really accept where you are, uh, at least for me. But I would say that what does help is that we're all kind of in this together, that collectively, that's what I've, I've come to know. But I would say to answer your question, I think it's like doing the therapy. You start really examining a little bit. I don't know if this happened for you, but it's like you start thinking about your own life a little bit, how to apply some of the things that you're learning in your own life. So I would say that kind of helped a little bit. And to realize that in the end, you know, it's about the meaning. A lot of these things, like we talked about, they are self-generated, right? There are things that we create in order for us to not be okay. We have to kind of make something up. Okay, I've got to, whatever, I've got to make the Olympic team. If I don't make the Olympic team, it's going to be the worst thing in the world. Nobody's saying that. I'm saying, right? Which again, that could be a driver, but is that really true? Can we be okay as human beings or as people without attaching external things that make us okay? Because as you well know, they're temporary, they're always changing. So we may feel okay for a little bit and we may not feel probably right. feel that. It's the argument about external rewards in sport, right? As motivators, right? We want mm-hmm. the championship, you want the gold. And then what happens when you don't get it, right? Or what happens when somebody comes in who's hungrier than you? You know, what happens to your motivation? What is, how does that impact our story inside of ourselves? Like we know a lot of, we see it in professional sports where a lot of people have been great for many years, then all of a sudden they get to a certain level and everybody's just as good. And it's like, but my whole identity is success and this this is who I am. So how do I incorporate that? How do I adjust my story that now incorporates learning, patience, process, improvement? Sure. <laughs> what does that mean about me? Can I accept that? Yeah. And then, yeah, that's such a good question. And then what happens also when you do win that? And then there's nothing after that. So those are those are important things. That's why they say, at least for Olympians and Paralympians, the goal should be instantaneous. That's what my coach says. You should get a goal again, try to create another goal. But that's a little bit like as existential psychotherapy, right? That there really is no self. That's what they're trying to say. And that's, a, that's what they're saying in psychology, right? The big problem is people's difficulty with self and this construction of self and how it relates to things. So yeah, I think those are good questions to ask. That, yeah, this could be, yeah, this could turn into a good long uh, therapy session. <laughs> I'm always refreshed to hear a professional in the mental health world and in the sporting realm who says, I know that I study this and I learn about it and I apply this. And I always get concerned when I see a coach who's not reflecting, right? Or a therapist mm. that is busy caring for others, but I'll put the microscope on myself. You know, uh, you know, I know we can all get to that place of doing too much, going too yeah. much towards performance, whether it be for all the right reasons, whether it sure. be to take care of a family, to heal more patients post-COVID pressure or there or to get the next level of achievement on an amazing sporting career or even right for your whole team if we can't shift it off and take moments of appreciating or having gratitude or even savoring some of the achievement it's really something that is not necessarily an ego-based thing to enjoy the experience of your living and your competing like you yeah. said to enjoy the match like it's pretty cool to be there and be like yeah i'm making this game really difficult like why a, a game I have to remind myself, well, a game is meant to be fun. And it right. is fun when there's a challenge. That's what but, you, you have to enjoy it. That's really the whole thing. And when I know as an athlete, when I lose sight of that, that's the worst for me, you know, and that happens sometimes, you know, even after playing. I mean, I had my best mental performance in 2019 when I had to win the Para Pan American Games. I was down match point. I won it. Lucky, if you want to call it luck, or maybe, you know, we're, we're both very close in level. So it's never too late. You know, I'm still working on the mental game, getting a little bit better. My coach says I have to work 
towards thinking logically as opposed to emotionally. I have to look at what state I'm in and try to solve problems while I'm playing matches. So what did you do well in that moment when you were faced with, you know, the scariest moment possible probably in competition? Yeah, it is a pretty big moment because, you know, when you lose, then you, you know, you're training four years for something and then you can't make your Paralympics, which is very big for us. It's like the Olympic Games. So in that time I said, you know what, it's it's okay. You know, I didn't say if I make it or not, I still say, you know, I'm, you know, I'm a social worker, I'm a therapist. You know, I'm still doing okay. If I don't make it, it's okay. But I'm going to make it difficult for my opponent. So I really was just focusing on uh, competing. And also the in that specific match, my opponent was playing a lot better than I was. So in some sense, that did reduce a little bit of the pressure for me because he was just playing so well that I was just trying to hang in there and trying to battle with him. And he was a very tough opponent because in table tennis, we have these you know, we have these sponges that you put on your racket, right? So this is like a regular sponge. Mm -hmm. Actually, these are many years old, but and you have ones that are pips. Uh, so this guy had like a longer type pip and it reverses the spin, but he was able to change very quickly. So it's very difficult to track. He was able to move the racket in his hand really fast. And sometimes you play with the sponge, sometimes you drop the ball. It was a very difficult style. You could change your racket mid-game? You have a forehand and back. Here's my table tennis racket. This is one of the best rackets, the Jula Freeze racket, really good. But so you have the sponge. So the pips would be on one side. You know, let's say you'd have them on this side. So this is regular sponge, and then this would be pips. So the person could really just change so fast in the middle of the point. It's kind of hard because you're trying to look at the ball, you're trying to do these things. Man, he's he mastered that pretty well, and it was pretty tough. So it was, it was a good battle. It was a good battle. And then at the end, he broke down crying after he lost him up. And, and this is actually the third time. The Four years ago, he had me to beat two, and I came back, and the same thing happened. I was down, I think, 5-1 in the last game. Told myself, oh, okay. You know, it's okay. Cannot make it. Just try your best. You, know? so you just in the moment went to a place of acceptance. Yes. You didn't start to overreact to the pressure of the moment it meant. Yes. I probably could have said that and just saved about five minutes. But yeah, that's perfect. <laughs> I like the demonstration on records. <laughs> I mean, you know, for a lot of my listeners, they're so unaware about sports. And we did, we went out and we did a few episodes on curling. And then we mm -hmm. did wheelchair curling, by the way. And that was one mm -hmm. of the most competitive matches I've ever been around. In fact, it was the most acceptance yeah. and support. And then it was the most competitive. And then it was the most acceptance and support. So... You know, because obviously on the ice, you have to be very careful with wheelchairs. And Sounds exciting. I'm going to look that up. Yeah, I saw some of that before. But I, table tennis is such a good sport because it's like running and playing chess and boxing at the same time. And we've been super fortunate, that even though we've had this terrible pandemic, there's a place called Ping Pod. Actually, I have the hat on for some reason. I just had it on today. But they have like these pods in the city and they're opening up multiple locations. And you go through their website. And you just take the person that you know, so you don't have to see anybody. You get the, and that's where I've been training. And it's it's a professional sort of. It's like playing in it in an Olympics because the way they have it set up, it's unbelievable. The, so everything's professional. Yeah, you reserve it, so if, it's not too expensive. I don't know the exact cost of it, but it's pretty. It depends on the time you go, but you're in an actual. You're playing in a place that's actually Olympic level, so you can have somebody just coming off the street, even if they've been playing for a couple months. They can actually. It's almost like you're in the Olympic arena because the conditions are just so incredible. So that's been, I've been fortunate for that and they're, do, they're doing really well. So that's where I do, I do my training and that's helped me. Now I've, I played a tournament yesterday 
And I won a tournament last week. I made the final yesterday. These are able body tournaments are very difficult. It's basically because I've been training at this place called Ping Pod. It's just the conditions That's are just incredible. incredible. Well, well, you said a lot yeah. there, right? Having the condition, mm -hmm. and I tell mm -hmm. a lot of, somehow gravitate. I've got a lot of the athletes, even that it's not called shooting. It's called play pigeon, play pigeon shooting. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yes. Sporting yep. plays, I believe is the name, the technical yep. name. But, you know, they could show up about a lot of athletes start to come to me. And it could be really windy. And the next time it could be really hot. So if you can't prepare, and I know like marathon mm -hmm. runners do that too, right? They mm -hmm. train in Portland, Oregon or somewhere where the climate yep. matches yes. Olympic, mm -hmm. you know, so that's pretty amazing that you've, you've accessed that and you can imitate the conditions that you're going to be competing in at the highest level. Yeah. And that's exactly it. And that's giving me a huge advantage. That's exactly it. That when I'm playing in this ping pong place, I'm like in the best world-class conditions. So then when I go into the world championship or go to the Olympics, I've been training in these places like, you know, 500 times. So you get used to it. You get the feel. So I think that's pretty, I think that for me, I mean, they have some other stuff they do, you know, for other people, which is really great. But at the highest level for me, that's the most value of the place that I can get out of. How have you found balance, Tal, between your, the mental health work and continuing your sport as an adult? I would say... Uh, you know, I think it, it does reduce pressure, you know, when I, especially when I started school, because I was training full time in 2006, when I started school, I was going to school full time. So I couldn't train as much anymore. So that made a little bit of a difference. And I stopped really full time training. So I was playing in the world championship in 2006 and I was playing for the bronze medal and I was up seven, four in the last game. And then my opponent's coach called the timeout and then I just lost a string of points. I, you know, I ended up losing the match, very close match against a really good player. He was an Austrian national champion for able-bodied. He's one of the best players in the world. But then I said, wow, I'm putting all my energy in all this stuff. And I was like, well, I think I was 30 years old at that time, maybe a little younger. And I was like, oh, what am I going to be doing in like 15 years? I was like, all right, I'm going to try to go back to school. And then that's where I am right now. But that was a, a long journey. And actually, the one thing I said, which might be useful for people, is I was like, you know what? Okay, this is what I'm doing now. Okay, I'm a professional athlete. What am I going to be doing in five years? So, you know, I say to people, okay, five years will pass, but there's a, a window of time. There's something that you can do something. And then five years later, you can be in a different place in your life. It could be anything. It could be training for a sport. It could be preparing for a career that you want to do. But there is that initial thing where it's like, okay, now my life is different. And there is, yeah, there is some personal responsibility for us, like, you know, that, that we can utilize to some extent. So when you say personal responsibility, you say personal responsibility to help other athletes, to inspire others to possibilities. Can you just maybe expand upon that? You know, and how does that tie into your relationship with Maccabi? Oh yeah, we have to cover the Maccabi games, which we're going to talk about because that's a really important part of my life. But I would say I was looking at this, I guess, this athlete called, his name is David Goggins. He went to like Hell Week for Navy SEALs for like, three times he's the only one he did a bunch of stuff i think he has the world world record for pull-ups almost 5,000 pull-ups in 17 hours then he did the did a bunch of marathons but i think what it is is that we all have our struggle and in you know i know physically it's very difficult because i'm you know my body's in a lot of pain but i think we have a responsibility one to try to be kind to others to, to try to be kind to ourselves and to really say okay maybe maybe i could live a little bit better or a little bit different in my life and it doesn't mean all the stuff that happened obviously those are things that we you know as therapists and what we do you know we try to help people through that but you know maybe people could live a little bit better and that's what i would say again we can go on talk for hours but the i would say the most if you want to say there's something tragic about people we work with is that people are getting up and they're just feeling so badly whatever the reason may be or they're not participating in life and and that's what 
you know, try to work towards that somebody can actually, you know, get up, feel okay, and kind of participate in life the way they would like to. So I would say that's, that would be a good view of personal responsibility. But to pick it up with the Maccabea games, Maccabi games. So what, it's really interesting because when I started para table tennis, that was in 1995. There was someone named Sharon Brooks, and she was working with her synagogue, and they raised money to have me travel to this, my first para tournament. And they did the same for Maccabi games. And that time I raised like $300, but I had nothing, had no money, didn't have anything. And it was completely accepted into the Maccabi games. That was in 1997. That was my first one. I never forgot that experience. So when I went back in 2013, I was able to help other people, but something about those games that, I mean, I made friends there that I'm still friends with today. That- and for those of our listeners, you know, we've had other guests from Maccabi internationally and the, and the Maccabi games there's there's national games and then there's international games which i think this summer because of covid will be in south america i believe so i think the national ones yeah and i think the Maccabi games are supposed to be in 2022 the actual world that's the world Maccabi games right correct and it'll be held in israel and it's an organization that is designed to try and raise funds and the fact that they help athletes get their experience there and to continue competition, part of kind of international brotherhood and sportsmanship and relating, you know, to continuing, you know, all these amazing, you know, sports, this identity worldwide and connection across culture. I remember going there and I remember the team event was, was the best. I mean, we had, we ended up playing for the bronze medal and I was down 1914. That was when they had 21 points in the last game and I came back and won that, but my team was amazing. They really played well. We just had such a good chemistry. I would say if anybody's thinking about trying out for those games, I would definitely, that to me was more enjoyable than any Paralympics that I went to because it just made a lot of friends. It was just such a great experience and I'm looking forward to 2022. Go for it again. So it'll be good. And I think it's going to be good. Yeah. It's incredible. And and so do you still stay involved? Do you have time for, for mentoring young athletes, for encouraging them to, to, you know, the mental side of being a Paralympic athlete or you know, this, this whole war and wanting to, knowing you can compete and, and beat able-bodied athletes and yet still, you know, sometimes having to take the Paralympic route. I'm glad you asked that because what we're going to do with PingPod is we're in the process of starting a really big program helping disabled athletes, athletes with disabilities, individuals with disabilities, individuals with autism. And we have, uh, just because of COVID, we haven't, we haven't started it yet, but we have a lot of things in place. And yeah, I've been doing that for quite some time, you know, uh, many, many years trying to help athletes. I'm picturing, you know, helping all the teen athletes who've been angsty sitting in their homes, all that energy hitting something. I started an organization called Project Table Tennis a few years ago, and we've done a lot of stuff in living assisted uh, centers. And that's how, you know, I met up with John. We did, we ran some programs for athletes with disabilities, some table tennis camps and things with the Parks Department of New York City. So yeah, we have a lot of stuff going on and, and that's going to be my focus. You know, once we get out of this, you know, once the Paralympics finish, get in September, I'm going to work with PingPod and Project Table Tennis and we're going to we're going to start some really good programs to help all of the the para players in, in New York City. So it's going to be really, I'm really looking forward to that. Really is going to be awesome. And I'm going to create a program where all the stuff that I've learned I'm going to start, you know, building, we're going to have a good, good training center. And I'm hoping that we'll, we'll be among the best athletes in the world. We'll, you know, we'll bring back some, you know, some gold medals. I love it. I love it. Always keeping your eye on the prize. 
and you've got plenty of medals for all listeners <laughs> listening. You've got, you need some more uh, furniture for your medals soon. I mean, I was fortunate enough to, uh, you know, most of my success has been in, in para table tennis. Uh, I've played pretty good in able body table tennis too. I won the U.S. National Championship men's over 30, men's over 40. I almost won the doubles once. I made the final. That was good. I won the collegiate doubles a couple of times. Wasn't too bad, you know, probably beaten uh, in my time. I think every American born athlete, I would say getting older, they're getting, yeah, they're not too bad, not too bad, but now we've got some real great ones that uh yeah i don't know if it'll, it'll be tough to catch them but uh, it won't be easy for them give them some good matches well tall i can't wait to come out to ping pod and you know get some lessons and get humble great please you know if you have other information about the work or programs to work with people with disabilities or emotional or physical please let us know and we can mm -hmm. promote that we'd be happy to get behind that with you it's just an honor to meet you and, and spend time with you maybe closing just parting thoughts and how everyone can get a hold of you if you're willing to have people come uh sure I'm, I'm on facebook anyone could always send me a message on facebook messenger yeah we we will have a lot of programs you know we'll stay connected think i mean the stuff that's going to happen at, at ping pod for for the power community is going to be really really big it's going to be the biggest program in the country so we're really excited about that yeah i think this is this was a great it was great meeting you glad we got connected just tremendous and yeah it's always good it's always good to stay connected and i would say for people table tennis is a great sport it changed my life yeah try actually new york city if you're in new york city they're opening i think a, a bunch of other pods around they have a few locations there's another big one opening up on 37th street between 8th and 9th avenue i think they were talking about expanding throughout the entire country so i'm hoping they do that as well it i mean it's a, it's a world-class facility uh the owners are just great people really really nice yeah it's just if anybody wants to experience world-class table tennis yeah check it out you have a good time and can you it's come if you're inexperienced can you come if you're a disability level eight can you come are there any restrictions they have every single level so they have a league there if people want to join but what's really cool is that you can bring your friends you don't even have to see anybody just do it through the app you don't you know you go you book it and you have everything at your you have the table it's like you have therapy some... it's anonymous ping yeah. Pong. <laughs> yeah it is a good therapy actually for people people have always said that i know for me it's good but yeah it's a good it's i'm excited about it because the conditions i i didn't think we'd ever get a place like this in new york city that had these world-class conditions because we always played in these parks department and these places that were some were okay but most not so good so now it's like wow you know you're you're kind of in this world-class facility and you're just like man this is just so awesome it's like i'm at the olympics every day is it you by know, Chelsea so. Piers? How do they find this big space? Uh, they have one which is on Allen Street. It's on Allen Street in Chinatown. You can look at their website, pingpod.com. Yeah. They have another one. They're going to open one on 37th Street uh, between 8th and 9th, which should be open probably in the next couple of weeks. Then they have one, I think, 99th Street in Broadway. They're going to open one in Brooklyn. So I think they'll have about four or five in the city. But it's just a, you know, it's like when you go, I don't know if you've been to Japan, you go to these places and they have these like, some they have these pods that you can sleep in. They're kind of, small but imagine one where you can play table tennis and yeah I'm, I'm excited about it it's the i think it's the best thing that's happened for table tennis since i've been playing because it's just just a group of people and just having those conditions for me you know we got to sign off in a minute but you know the the yep. best the recreation center my local recreation center and the three dollar pink card that got me in i always talk about it i think i even got my yeah. laminated 
and you could play and they closed for lunch you could go back and play and there were like eight courts yeah to me that was that was disneyland you know that was it right unbelievable thank you for taking the time to speak with me and Anyone can reach out. Yeah, if you want any tips about table tennis, just send me an email. You can you can reach me on Facebook, Talibovitz at gmail.com if you want to send me any questions. But anything, if you have programs, you want to help you know disabled people, anybody, we just try to do the best we can. Perfect. And we'll put that in the show notes. We'll put your email and Pink Pod for sure. Tal, thank you so much. Thank you, Richard. Well, everyone, thank you for joining special edition of the Richard Listens Show. I'm truly grateful to all of you. Again, I'm Richard Listens, clinical psychologist. If you or anyone you know need help, please reach out to me, richardlistens.com, on Instagram, at Richard Listens, or Facebook, Richard, where we have instructional videos, posts, and I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Please listen, like, subscribe, and share with anyone you know on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. That was a mouthful. Have a great day, everyone. I'm Richard Listens, and I'm out. I'm a big fan of MMA sports. It's rough and elegant at the same time. I think my number one fear of stepping into a ring like that would be protecting my teeth. Luckily, the guys over at Impact Dental Designs have created an amazing mouth guard that is state of the art. These mouth guards are currently being used by some of the best MMA fighters, but even better, they can be tailored to any sport. Football, hockey, boxing, soccer, the list is endless. Head over to impactdentaldesigns.com slash richardlistens to get 20% off your order and a free customized design for your mouth guard. Lastly, I'd like to proudly mention our sponsor, Injitsu.com, providing remote at-home training from some of the world's top MMA fighters. These classes are not pre-recorded. These trainers come to you live and coach you for the duration of the session. I've personally taken a few of these classes and I've never felt so inspired and accomplished in a workout session. They'll leave you both on the floor in exhaustion and with a drenched shirt. There are still slots available for online classes, so head over to injitsu.com slash richardlistens to get your first class free. That's I-N-J-I-T-S-U dot com slash richardlistens. Take care, everyone.